The Forgiveness of Sins by John Owen. An exposition upon Psalm 130. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. A paraphrase, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, through my manifold sins and provocations, I have brought myself into great distresses. Mine iniquities are always before me, and I am ready to be overwhelmed with them, as with a flood of waters, for they have brought me into depths, wherein I am ready to be swallowed up. But yet, although my distress be great and perplexing, I do not, I dare not, utterly despond, cast away all hopes of relief or recovery. Nor do I seek into any other remedy, way, or means of relief. But I apply myself to Thee, Jehovah, to Thee alone. And in this my application unto Thee, the greatness and urgency of my troubles makes my soul urgent, earnest, and pressing in my supplications. Whilst I have no rest, I can give Thee no rest. O oh, therefore attend and hearken unto the voice of my crying and supplications. Verse 3, it is true, O Lord, thou God, great and terrible, that if thou shouldst deal with me in this condition, with any man living, with the best of thy saints, according to the strict and exact tenor of the law, which first represents itself to my guilty conscience and troubled soul, if thou shouldst take notice of, observe, and keep in remembrance mine, or there, or the iniquity of any one to the end that thou mightst deal with them and recompense unto them according to the sentence thereof. There would be, neither for me nor them, any the least expectation of deliverance. All flesh must fail before thee, and the spirits which thou hast made, and that to eternity. For who could stand before thee when thou shouldst so execute thy displeasure? Verse 4. But, O Lord, this is not absolutely and universally the state of things between Thy majesty and poor sinners. Thou art in Thy nature infinitely good and gracious, ready and free in the purposes of Thy will to receive them. And there is such a blessed way made for the exercise of the holy inclinations and purposes of Thy heart towards them in the mediation and blood of Thy dear Son, that they have assured foundations of concluding and believing that there is pardon and forgiveness with thee for them, and which, in the way of thine appointments, they may be partakers of. This way, therefore, will I, with all that fear thee, persist in. I will not give over, leave thee, or turn from thee, through my fears, discouragements, and despondencies,
but will abide constantly in the observation of the worship which thou hast prescribed and the performance of the obedience which thou dost require, having great encouragement so to do. Verse 5. And herein, upon the account of the forgiveness that is with thee, O Lord, do I wait with all patience, quietness, and perseverance. In this work is my whole soul engaged, even in an earnest expectation of thy approach unto me in a way of grace and mercy. And for my encouragement therein hast thou given out unto me a blessed word of grace, a faithful word of promise, whereon my hope is fixed. Verse 6. Yea, in the performance and discharge of this duty, my soul is intent upon thee, and in its whole frame turn towards thee, and that with such diligence and watchfulness in looking out after every way and means of thy appearance, of the manifestation of thyself and coming unto me, that I excel therein those who with longing desire, heedfulness, and earnest expectation do wait and watch for the appearance of the morning, and that either that they may rest from their night watches or have light for the duties of thy worship in the temple, which they are most delighted in. Verses 7 and 8. Herein have I found that rest, peace, and satisfaction unto my own soul, that I cannot but invite and encourage others in the like condition to take the same course with me. Let then all the Israel of God, all that fear Him, learn this of me, and from my experience. Be not hasty in your distresses. Despond not. Despair not. Turn not aside unto other remedies. But hope in the Lord. For I can now, in an especial manner, give testimony unto this, that there is mercy with Him suited unto your relief. Yea, whatever your distress be, the redemption that is with Him is so bounteous plenteous and unsearchable that the undoubted issue of your performance of this duty will be that you shall be delivered from the guilt of all your sins and the perplexities of all your troubles. General Scope of the Whole Psalm The design of the Holy Ghost in this psalm is to express in the experience of the psalmist and the working of his faith the state and condition of a soul greatly in itself perplexed, relieved on the account of grace, and acting itself towards God and His saints suitably through the discovery of that grace unto Him, a great design and full of great instruction. And this general prospect gives us the parts and scope of the whole psalm. For we have 1 the state and condition of the soul therein represented with his deportment in and under that state and condition in verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I have cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Number two, his inquiry after relief. And therein are two things that present themselves unto him, the one whereof, which 
first offers the consideration of itself to him in his distress, he deprecates. Verse 3, If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? The other he closes with, and finds relief in it and supportment by it. Verse 4, But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. Upon this his discovery and fixing on relief, there is an acting of his faith and the deportment of his whole person. Number one, towards God, verses five and six. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Number two, towards the saints, verses seven and eight. Let Israel hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. All which parts and the various concernments of them must be opened severally. And this also gives an account of what is my design from and upon the words of this psalm, namely to declare the perplexed entanglements which may befall a gracious soul. Such a one as the psalmist was, with the nature and proper workings of faith in such a condition, principally aiming at what it is that gives a soul relief and supportment in, and afterward deliverance from, such a perplexed estate. The Lord in mercy disposes of these meditations in such a way and manner as that both he that writes and they that read may be made partakers of the benefit, relief, and consolation intended for his saints in this psalm by the Holy Ghost. Verses 1 and 2. The state and condition of the soul represented in the psalm. The two first verses opened. The state and condition of the soul here represented as the basis on which the process of the psalm is built with its deportment or the general acting of its faith in that state is expressed in the first two verses. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Number one, the present state of the soul under consideration is included in that expression, out of the depths. Some of the ancients, as Chrysostom, Suppose this expression to relate into the depths of the heart of the psalmist, not from the mouth or tongue only, but from the depth and bottom of the heart, from the deepest recesses of the mind. And indeed, the word is used to express the depths of the hearts of men, but utterly in another sense, Psalm 46, 6, the heart is deep. But the obvious sense of the place and the constant use of the word will not admit this interpretation. It is commonly used for valleys or any deep places, whatever, but especially of waters. Valleys and deep places, because of their darkness and solitariness, are accounted places of horror, helplessness, and trouble. Psalm 23, 4, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that is, in the extremity of danger and trouble. 
The moral use of the word as expressing the state and condition of the souls of men is metaphorical. These depths, then, are difficulties or pressures attended with fear, horror, danger, and trouble. And they are two sorts. Number one, providential, in respect of outward distresses, calamities, and afflictions. So in Psalm 69, verses 1 and 2, Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I stick in the mire of the deep, and there is no standing. I am come into the depths of waters, and the flood overflows me. It is trouble and the extremity of it that the psalmist complains of, and which he thus expresses. He was brought by it into a condition like unto a man ready to be drowned, being cast into the bottom of deep and miry waters, where he had no firm foundation to stand upon, or ability to come out as he farther explains himself in verse 15. Number two, their internal depths, depths of conscience upon the account of sin, Psalm 88, 6. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the deeps. What he intends by this expression, the psalmist declares in the next words, verse 7, Thy wrath lies hard upon me. Sense of God's wrath upon his conscience, upon the account of sin, was the deep he was cast into. So verse 15, speaking of the same matter, saith he, I suffer thy terrors. And verse 16, Thy fierce wrath goeth over me, which he calls water, waves, and deeps, according to the metaphor before opened. And these are the deeps that are here principally intended. Says Austin on the place, he cries out under the weight and waves of his sins. This, the ensuing psalm, makes evident. Desiring to be delivered from these depths, out of which he cried, he deals with God wholly about mercy and forgiveness. And it is sin alone from which forgiveness is a deliverance. The doctrine also that he preaches upon his delivery is that of mercy, grace, and redemption, as is manifest from the close of the psalm. And what we have deliverance by is most upon our hearts when we are delivered. It is true indeed that these deeps do oftentimes concur as David speaks. Deep calls unto deep, Psalm 42, 7. The deeps of affliction awaken the conscience to a deep sense of sin. But sin is the disease, affliction only a symptom of it. And in attending a cure, the disease itself is principally to be heeded. The symptom will follow or depart of itself. Many interpreters think that this was now David's condition. By great trouble and distress, he was greatly minded of sin. And we must not, therefore, wholly pass over that intendment of the word, though we are chiefly to respect that which he himself, in this address unto God, did principally regard. This, in general, is the state and condition of the soul managed in this psalm and is as the key to the ensuing discourse, or the hinge on which it turns. As to my intendment from the psalm, that which arises from hence may be comprised in these two propositions. Number one, gracious souls, after much communion with God, may be brought into inextricable depths and entanglements on account of sin, 
For such the psalmist here expresses his own condition to have been, and such he was. Number two, the inward root of outward distresses is principally to be attended in all pressing trials, sin, in afflictions. Gracious souls may be brought into depths on the account of sin, what those depths are. Before I proceed at all in the farther opening of the words, they having all of them respect unto the proposition first laid down, I shall explain and confirm the truth contained in it, that so it may be understood what we say, and whereof we do affirm in the whole process of our discourse. It is a sad truth that we have proposed unto consideration. He that hears it ought to tremble in himself, that he may rest in the day of trouble. It speaks out of the Apostles' advice, Romans eleven twenty, Be not high-minded, but fear. And that also of 1 Corinthians ten twelve, Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. When Peter had learned this truth by woeful experience, after all his boldness and frowardness, he gives this counsel to all saints, that they would pass the time of their sojourning here in fear. 1 Peter 1.17 Knowing how near in our greatest peace and serenity evil and danger may lie at the door. Some few instances of the many that are left on record wherein this truth is exemplified may be mentioned. Genesis 6-9 Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. He did so a long season, and that in an evil time amidst all sorts of temptations, when all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth, verse 12. This put imminency upon his obedience, and doubtless rendered the communion which he had with God in walking before him most sweet and precious to him. He was a gracious soul upon the redoubled testimony of God himself. But we know what befell this holy person. He that shall read the story that is recorded of him in Genesis 9, verses 20 to 27, will easily grant that he was brought into inextricable distress on the account of sin, his own drunkenness. Verse 21, with the consequent of it, gives scandal unto and provokes the unnatural lust of his son. Verse 22, and this leads him to the devoting of that son and his posterity unto destruction, verses 24 and 25, all which join with a sense of God's just indignation, from whom he had newly received that tremendously miraculous deliverance, must needs overwhelm him with sorrow and anxiety of spirit. The matter is more clear in David. Under the Old Testament, none loved God more than he. None was loved of God more than he. The paths of faith and love wherein he walked are unto the most of us like the way of an eagle in the air, too high and hard for us. Yet to this very day do the cries of this man after God's own heart sound in our ears. Sometimes he complains of broken bones, sometimes of drowning depths, and sometimes of waves and water spouts, sometimes of wounds and diseases sometimes of wrath and sorrows of hell. Everywhere of his sins, the burden and trouble of them. Some of the occasions of his depths 
darkness, entanglements, and distresses, we know as no man had more grace than he, so none is a greater instance of the power of sin and the effects of its guilt upon the conscience than he. But instances of this kind are obvious and occur to the thoughts of all, so that they need not be repeated. I shall then show. First, what in particular is intended by the depths and entanglements on the account of sin, wherein gracious souls after much communion with God may be cast. Secondly, whence it comes to pass that so they may be, and that oftentimes so they are. For the first, some or all of these things following do concur to the depths complained of. Number one, loss of the wonted sense of the love of God, which the soul did formerly enjoy. There is a twofold sense of the love of God, whereof believers in this world may be made partakers. There is the transient acting of the heart by the Holy Ghost with ravishing, unspeakable joys in apprehension of God's love and our relation unto Him in Christ. This, or the immediate effect of it, is called joy unspeakable and full of glory. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. The Holy Ghost shines into the heart with a clear evidence of the soul's interest in all gospel mercies, causes it to leap for joy and exult and triumph in the Lord, as being for a season carried above all sense and thought of sin, self-temptation or trouble. But as God gives the bread of his house unto all his children, so these dainties and high cordials he reserves only for the seasons and persons wherein, and to whom he knows them to be needful and useful. Believers may be without this sense of love, and yet be in no depths. A man may be strong and healthy who has wholesome food, though he never drinks spirits and cordials. Again, there is an abiding, dwelling sense of God's love upon the hearts of the most of those of whom we speak, who have had long communion with God, consisting in a prevailing gospel persuasion that they are accepted with God in Christ, Romans 5.1, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. I call it a prevailing persuasion, denoting both the opposition that is made unto it by Satan and unbelief and its efficacy in the conquest thereof. This is the root from whence all that peace and ordinary consolation which believers in this world are made partakers of do spring and grow. This is that which quickens and enlivens them into duty, Psalm 116, verses 12 and 13, and is the salt that renders their sacrifices and performances savory to God and refreshing to themselves. This supports them under their trials, gives them peace, hope, and comfort in life and death. Psalm 23, 4. Though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. A sense of God's presence in love is sufficient to rebuke all anxiety and fears in the worst and most dreadful condition, and not only so, but to give in the midst of them solid consolation and joy. So the prophet expressed it, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines. The labor of the olives shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. 
And this is that sense of love which the choicest believers may lose on the account of sin. This is one step into their depths. They shall not retain any such gospel apprehension of it, that it should give them rest, peace, or consolation, that it should influence their souls with the light in duty or supportment in trial. And the nature hereof will be afterward more fully explained. Number two, perplexed thoughtfulness about their great and wretched unkindness toward God is another part of the depths of sin entangled souls. So David complains in Psalm 77, 3, I remembered God, says he, and was troubled. How comes the remembrance of God to be unto him a matter of trouble? In other places he professes that it was all his relief and supportment. How comes it to be an occasion of his trouble? All had not been well between God and him. And whereas formerly, in his remembrance of God, his thoughts were chiefly exercised about his love and kindness, now they were wholly possessed with his own sin and unkindness. This causes his trouble. Herein lies a share of the entanglements occasioned by sin. Saith such a soul in itself, Foolish creature, hast thou thus requited the Lord? Is this the return that thou hast made unto him for all his love, his kindness, his consolations, mercies? Is this thy kindness for him, thy love to him? Is this thy kindness to thy friend? Is this thy boasting of him, that thou hast found so much goodness and excellency in him and his love, that though all men should forsake him, thou never wouldst do so? Are all thy promises, all thy engagements which thou hast made unto God in times of distress upon prevailing obligations and mighty impressions of his good spirit upon thy soul, now come to this? that thou shouldst so foolishly forget, neglect, despise, cast him off? Well, now he is gone. He is withdrawn from thee, and what will you do? Are thou not even ashamed to desire him to remember? They were thoughts of his nature that cut Peter to the heart upon his fall. The soul finds them cruel as death and strong as the grave. It is bound in the chains of them and cannot be comforted. Psalm 38, verses 3 and 6. Herein consists a great part of the depths inquired after, for this consideration excites and puts an edge upon all grieving, straightening, perplexing affections, which are the only means whereby the soul of a man may be inwardly troubled or trouble itself. Such are sorrow and shame with that self-displicency and the revenge wherewith they are attended. And as the reason and object in this case do transcend all other occasions of them, so on no other account do they cause such severe and perplexing reflections on the soul as on this. Number three, a revived sense of justly deserved wrath belongs also to these depths. This is as the opening of old wounds, when men have passed through a sense of wrath and have obtained deliverance and rest through the blood of Christ, to come to their old thoughts again, to be trading afresh with hell, curse, law, and wrath, is a depth indeed. And this often befalls gracious souls on the account of sin. Psalm 88, 7, Thy wrath lies hard upon me, saith Hinman. It presses and crushes him sorely. There is a self-judging as to the desert of wrath, which is consistent with a comforting persuasion of an interest in Christ. This the soul finds sweetness in, 
as it lies in a subservience to the exaltation of grace. But in this case, the soul is left under it without that relief. It plunges itself into the curse of the law and flames of hell without any cheering supportment from the blood of Christ. This is walking in the valley of the shadow of death. The soul converseth with death and what seems to lie in the tendency thereunto. The Lord also, to increase his perplexities, puts new life and spirit into the law, gives it a fresh commission, as it were, to take such a one into its custody, and the law will never in this world be wanting unto its duty. Number four, oppressing apprehensions of temporal judgments concur herein also. For God will judge his people, and judgment often begins at the house of God. Though God says such a one should not cast me off forever, though he should pardon my iniquities, yet he may so take vengeance on my invitations as to make me feed on gall and wormwood all my days. Psalm 119, 120 says, David, my flesh trembles for fear of thee, and I am afraid of your judgments. He knows not what the great God may bring upon him, and being full of a sense of the guilt of sin, which is the bottom of this whole condition, every judgment of God is full of terror unto him. Sometimes he thinks God may lay open the filth of his heart and make him a scandal and a reproach in the world. Psalm 39, 8. Oh, says he, make me not a reproach of the foolish. Sometimes he trembles lest God should strike him suddenly with some signal judgment and take him out of the world in darkness and sorrow. So says David, Take me not away in thy wrath. Sometimes he fears lest he shall be like Jonah and raise a storm in his family, in the church whereof he is a member, or in the whole nation. Let them not be ashamed for my sake. These things makes his heart soft, as Job speaks, and to melt within him. When any affliction or public judgment of God is fastened to a quick living sense of sin in the conscience, it overwhelms the soul, whether it be only justly feared or be actually inflicted, as was the case of Joseph's brethren in Egypt. The soul is then rolled from one deep to another, sense of sin cast it on the consideration of its affliction, and affliction turns it back on a sense of sin. So deep calls to deep, and all God's billows go over the soul, and they do each of them make the soul tender and sharpen its sense unto the other. Affliction softens the soul so that the sense of sin cuts the deeper and makes the larger wounds, and the sense of sin weakens the soul and makes affliction sit the heavier and so increases its burden. In this case, that affliction which a man in his usual state of spiritual peace could have embraced as a sweet pledge of love is as goads and thorns in his side, depriving him of all rest and quietness. God makes it as thorns and briars wherewith he will teach stubborn souls their duty as Gideon did the men of Succoth. There may be added hereupon prevailing fears for a season of being utterly rejected by God, of being found a reprobate at the last day. Jonah seems to conclude so in chapter 2, verse 4. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. I am lost forever. God will own me no more. And Heman, Psalm 88, verses 4 and 5. I am counted with them that go down into the pit, free among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, whom thou rememberest no more, and they are cut off from thy hand. 
This may reach the soul until the sorrows of hell encompass it and lay hold upon it, until it be deprived of comfort, peace, and rest, until it be a terror to itself and be ready to choose strangling rather than life. This may befall a gracious soul on the account of sin. But yet, because this fights directly against the life of faith, God does not, unless it be in extraordinary cases, suffer any of his to lie long in this horrible pit, where there be no water or refreshment. But this often falls out that even the saints themselves are left for a season to a fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation as to the prevailing apprehensions of their minds. And number six, God secretly sends his arrows into the soul that wound and gall it, adding pain, trouble, and disquietness to its disconsolation. Psalm 38, 2. Thine arrows stick fast into me. Thy hand presses me sore. Ever and anon is his walking. God shot a sharp, piercing arrow, fixing it on his soul, that galled and wounded and perplexed him, filling him with pain and grievous vexation. These arrows are God's rebuke. Psalm 39, 11. When thou with rebukes dost correct man for iniquity. God speaks in his word and by his spirit in the conscience, things sharp and bitter to the soul, fastening them so as it cannot shake them off. These Job so mournfully complains of in chapter 6, verse 4. The Lord speaks words with that efficacy, that they pierce the heart quite through. And what the issue then is, David declares in Psalm 38, 3. There is no soundness, saith he, in my flesh because of thine anger, nor is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. The whole person is brought under the power of them, and all health and rest is taken away. Number seven, unspiritedness and disability and duty in doing or suffering attend such a condition. Psalm 40, verse 12. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me so that I am not able to look up. His spiritual strength was worn away by sin so that he was not able to address himself under the communion with God. The soul now cannot pray with life and power, cannot hear with joy and profit, cannot do good and communicate with cheerfulness and freedom, cannot meditate with delight and heavenly mindedness, cannot act for God with zeal and liberty, cannot think of suffering with boldness and resolution, but is sick, weak, feeble, and bowed down. Now I say a gracious soul, after much communion with God, may, on the account of sin, by a sense of the guilt of it, be brought into a state and condition wherein some, more, or all of these, with other like perplexities, may be its portion. And these make up the depths whereof the psalmist here complains. What are the sins, or of what sorts, that ordinarily cast the souls of believers into these depths, shall be afterward declared.